Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network, which has other amazing podcasts like Entrepreneurs on Fire, hosted by John Lee Dumas. Entrepreneurs on Fire stokes inspiration and shares strategies to fire up your entrepreneurial journey and create the life you've always dreamed of. Check out some of the recent episodes. Eight tools of improv comedy that you can use in work and life, how to turn your Instagram into a money-making machine, how to build a seven-figure side hustle without quitting your full-time day job, and overcoming the beast of depression as an entrepreneurial leader. If these topics are interesting for you, you definitely have to check out Entrepreneurs on Fire wherever you download your podcast. Today, my guest is Jagger McConnell, CEO of Crunchbase. Crunchbase is a prospecting platform powered by best-in-class proprietary data. Jagger joined Crunchbase in 2015 following the company's venture-backed spin-out from AOL Verizon. Prior to joining Crunchbase, Jagger spent 11 years in various roles across sales, marketing, and product development at Salesforce, ending his time at the company overseeing the core Salesforce automation product line as VP of product in the sales cloud. We spoke about Jagger's career and lessons learned from early stage startups he worked at, Crunchbase's business model, including its marketplace data and machine learning capabilities, fundraising, growing at all costs, data, and the severe lack of investment in underrepresented classes. Yeah, that's there's a, a lot of good answers that, that, that I have for that. Um, you know, I wasn't sure when I was a kid if I wanted to do film or if I wanted to do tech. I was a nerd. I, I like loved video games. I loved being in front of a computer more than probably interacting with humans. Um, so I I love that aspect of it, but I didn't quite know what my path would be. I just knew I loved tech and was involved with tech. Um, and then I was very into film. I wanted to make film. I wanted to write films. I had this whole passion around art. Um, so and and so I tried to ride that train as long as I possibly could, where I was no non-committal all the way to college. So I went to Carnegie Mellon University. And the reason I picked it was because they had a strong arts program and a strong engineering program. So I was still punting on the decision. Um, but it was actually nothing to do with school that, that, that pushed me down the right path. When it came time to, for summer, and I had to go have a summer job, there was, it wasn't anything for film, but there was plenty for tech. So I uh, did a little gig at Bayer Corporation, like the, the people that like make aspirin. They've got a whole like crazy chemical division, and somehow I got an internship there. Uh, that got me doing computer stuff, um, came up with a business idea, and off to the races in tech and haven't looked back. And, and even to this day, I think about retirement, and I'm like, well, when I retire, that's when I make the films. Now I go back and do the art. Hopefully I can self-fund my, my, my film career in the future. Do you think you ever, do you think you ever would? Do you think that, well, actually, I'll ask you if you think you ever would, but do you think that creativity uh, helped your career? Like that love for creativity oh, yeah. and art? Uh, uh, One million percent. Um, the, the only skills I have in life are looking at problems and coming up with creative solutions to those problems. Like that's the only thing I can do. Um, so that has translated into a pretty exciting tech career uh, because a lot of it's so programmatic a lot of the time. So you, where, where people don't like look at the pieces and say, oh, there's another way of doing this. There's an interesting um, 
aspect of this I hadn't thought of, and that's my that's my sweet spot where people say, look, these are the pieces that we have. What can we do with them? Um, that's that's my strength, and I think that comes right back to I've got this film idea, and how do I go and build a plot and something that was interesting for the whole whole thing? Um, they're definitely inter, inter, intertwined. And I guess that's so. Now now you're starting to pro- problem solve in startups. That was your after after Bayer. You started to get involved yeah. in some startups, and, and walk me through some of that experience. Obviously, I don't know any of the names of those startups, so it wasn't yeah. like yeah. that positive. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, they were very small, um, and probably like the most notable. There was a company called Betasphere, not around anymore, um, and it was beta testing software and services. So if you were like Cisco and you wanted to go and test a new router, we would find for you the beta testers to try it out, um, and then give you feedback. So it was like this very early, like lean startup, maybe approach to building products and like getting feedback early into your product development cycle. So it's not a terrible idea. Um, And I started off there as like a project manager. It was pretty small. Um, And and I was excited because that brought me to Silicon Valley. So I was like, this is back in 2000. So I probably none of your listeners were alive yet. (laughs) But back in 2000, there was a a tech community there. And uh, it was an exciting time to be a part of it. Um, And it was right at the end of a big bubble. And it's actually a lot of people compare the current bubble crashing thing that's happening right now to 2000. Um, when, when there was a big crash as well, where like Netscape had trouble, pets.com went out of business, like all these things started happening. And for, for me at the time, um, I was so scared of losing the job where I just worked my ass off. There was no way I was going to get laid off with the crashing that was happening. So I just worked insane hours nonstop and always was looking for how can I add more value into this company and how can I tie myself to revenue as as far as, as fast as I could. So when I joined, it was about, I don't know, 15 people. It went up to about 200, 250 people um, over about six months. So that was an amazing experience. We like went into a gigantic new office. It was like, wow, this is, I picked the, the right horse. And then like six months later, layoffs started happening. And over the next four years, I still stay at this company. It was seven rounds of layoffs. And I saw the company go from 250 people all the way back down to 15 people. Wow. Um, and it was. Oh, it was very big. And it was flattering because I didn't get laid off. So that was nice. So I, I did a good job of adding value and convincing people I was valuable. But what also was helpful for my career was I saw an opportunity to pick up every single responsibility that got dropped as people left. Um, so I took over the sales engineering team because I, I'm, I'm this, I, I know the product. I can do this. I started having more and more impact on product, on engineering. Um, so by the end, I was a pretty critical player in that company. Uh, and that helped accelerate my career even further because I wasn't afraid to just take on whatever responsibility I could, no matter what the topic was. It didn't fit my job description. I didn't care. I just wanted to not get fired. Uh, and that's, and that's, uh, that was a pretty important part that's of my a, career. That, that is an eye-opening experience. So everything you just yeah. discussed is, is what I actually try and highlight to people that want to go work in startups. Like what hmm. you just described to most people would be absolute hell. So I think that there is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, let's, let's be real. It's not, you just said we went through seven rounds of layoffs and I was picking up basically a responsibility as I went. And that is actually what accelerated your knowledge, your learning, your ability to op- operate at such a high capacity in Salesforce and in Crunchbase and like literally everything that you've done. Do you think that there's a, a major um, 
a major wake-up call when people start to work in startups that they have to be aware of what the reality is and what is that reality when you're working in a startup yeah i mean for for sure it's don't worry what your job description is you're there to succeed as a team right and just get shit done and there's no I, like I, it drives me crazy because i hear it more and more in uh sort of today's generation <laughs> where it's like well this is this is this is my job, job. description job description here that's it. yeah oh you want me to do more than my job description well you'll need to pay me a little bit more um for that added responsibility like back in those days that was not the case it was i want to keep my job i'll do i want us to succeed i'm gonna do whatever i can to make that happen um and i think that's rewarded and and ultimately it, it, like the learning that you have is worth doesn't may well more than the incremental salary increase that I could maybe negotiated, um, and that's ultimately what got me the job at Salesforce, which unlocked um, all the doors that got me to where I am today. What was the bigger? What was the bigger? Um, uh, I guess growth in your life was it at Salesforce or was it at Crunchbase, where you went from X revenue and X size to to X revenue X size? Compared to Crunchbase, that's yeah, that's a toughie. Um, I've learned a, a lot. I. From life impact, I've got to probably give it to Salesforce. Um, and, and the reason is, is you know, I, I walked in the door there as a sales engineer. Like, I, it was kind of the, 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 on the lower end of the sales spectrum. Um, so, like, skilled and respected. Um, but th there wasn't a lot of growth path. You can be a sales engineer manager, or maybe a director, or maybe a VP someday. But that path wasn't super exciting to me. Um, but the fact that I was able to move around the organization and find myself as head of product of the core Salesforce um, CRM, core Salesforce product after those years, like that, that was transformative to my career. Um, and that let me get the job at Crunchbase. So everything I've learned from Crunchbase has been transformative for me as a person. I've certainly learned way more than I knew before I started. Um, but the impact of actually like what I learned at Salesforce got me to where I am uh, without question. And I, I was actually curious, like at what point you like, cause I have to just sort of timestamp the date and the time when you joined Salesforce. I'm trying to yeah. figure out where they were at cause they weren't public at the time. Uh, right? They were, they, they had, they had just gone public. It was okay. 2004. Um, I joined, it was like 80 ish million in revenue, which is so crazy to think that how small that was and that they were going public at this size. Like it was, it was really early. Um, I actually didn't even know. think about that. That is small for public. Yeah. That's it was really, really small. It was really yeah. small. And it was, and it was, just, I mean, we we're 400 ish people. Like it was, it was a small company back then. Um, but the phone, I mean, but, but you knew it was a rocket ship from day one, even though like SaaS and software in the cloud was not certain, you know, like there's a lot of. Um, like even when I first started, like my first week at boot camp, uh, so learning all the in in intricate details, uh, details of Salesforce, um, it went down and it was down for like days. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have made a horrible mistake. I should have gone to work at Oracle or something. This is not a good idea. <laughs> um, so, so like it was that, and it was that risky back then. Um, and, and it was, a, it was a, a very uncertain model. Um, but the, the growth trajectory, like, like as a sales engineer, I, I had demos from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every single day. The phone was ringing up the hook. There was just a backlog of demand of this thing and people curious about what it was and if it would work for them. Uh, and that was, that was a fun time to be there. And that's why like going public was obviously the right thing in hindsight, but, uh, it, it was, it was, I've never, I've never been a part of a company growing that insanely fast. 
so then okay so then the follow-up question is you 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 encountered what it was like with the the salesforce the salesforce uh, growth trajectory you encountered what that feeling was like that experience was like it was transformative in your life in your career um what are you doing at crunchbase now to build an organization like that so that yeah. not just obviously for the the stakeholders but investors but also the the people that work for you it's going to be the one that they speak about when they go off and become ceo of the the next incredible company they're going to say this was a point in my career when everything changed for me the growth the learning the education everything yeah i mean crunchbase is an interesting thing it's been around for a long 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 time um and the, the people think of it as a certain thing. Um, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk maybe more about that later, but they, they think of it as this, this, this sort of place I go to look up companies. You know, that's, that's how, how most people think of it. Um, this gets back to one of my strengths. When the opportunity to spin it out presented itself, for me, it, it was really obvious what this thing could be, and it's not intuitive. Um, the, the, for me, what, I'm leaving Salesforce this CRM system built on top of an empty database, right? Incredible software, no value on day one. There's no value. You've got to put all this data into it, 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 it to, to get any value out of it. And the value is all around time savings and, and efficiency at, at the end of the day. Um, I saw an opportunity there. I was like, well, what if it wasn't built on top of an empty database? What if it was actually built on top of something that had very, very valuable data that you didn't as an organization know? Wouldn't that make it 10 times more valuable? Um, so the, when I heard about Crunchbase spinning out, I was like, well, you know, what if we built a prospecting you, first CRM? What do you mean CRM? by that, sorry? What do you mean yeah, by sure. that, spinning out? Like when, oh, when you oh, say yeah. that, what does that mean? So it was part of, so, so before my days, like, like it was a project at TechCrunch. And it was a, this project where they would just track which companies are writing stories about. And then people could, the, even internally, they would figure out which writers were writing stories about which companies, so there wasn't a lot of duplication. So it was this internal database. Eventually they made it public and then people could submit their own companies into Crunchbase so that they might get written about by TechCrunch. It was really like a lead source for TechCrunch initially. Um, no revenue, not a lot of users, not a lot of companies, like only like 10,000 or so companies. Um, over time, um, that slowly started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, no revenue. Um, America Online, remember them, went and built or, or bought TechCrunch and they valued Crunchbase at $0 and said, okay, we'll take it and we'll, maybe we'll, something will turn into it. Um, they invested to try to make it into like an ad, like they knew ads, right? So let's make more people see it, more eyeballs will sell ads and maybe we'll make money that way. Um, so it, it grew to you know, 20, 25 people. Um, and uh, that's when there was at least a lot of data growth and there was a lot of like, like trying to push on the data quality. Um, but they still didn't really have a, a real revenue model. That advertising was only making at the end like a million dollars a year. And you know, if you had 20 people, that's not gonna cut it. You know, so you're, bur you're burning a decent amount of money. So Verizon came in, bought America Online, um, and they're like, We're, what are we doing with this Crunchbase thing? Like, what, like, it doesn't add any value for us. We don't know what to do with it. We should spin it out. So eventually AOL slash Verizon wanted to spin it out as an independent company, hoping that it might first be a reduction of expenses on their, on their, on their P&L, but also uh, maybe become something bigger, um, being separate from, from the, this, this beast. So uh, that's when I joined. So I joined um, about a month or so before the spin out. Um, and so on the day of the spin out, it was at TechCrunch Disrupt, we announced that now Crunchbase was independent and we're now gonna go and do something entirely different, um, which is- and that's all you. That's you're, all me. That's so the, <laughs> no, no, or, well, tech, a million dollars in revenue, you have, you have a burn rate, 
It's never been proven out before. It's never been successful before. And like, yeah. Jagger, like, go, go get go, it. Go get it. <laughs> uh, so, and, and so for me, I, like, I knew I wasn't going to be building a website to sell ads. So, so one of my first missions was how do we turn off that ad revenue as fast as we possibly could and move to a subscription model where we're selling software on top of this thing. Um, and that's, so that's what I meant by spin out. And it's to build this, this kind of, my hope is this revolutionary um, CRM system that's this prospering for us. So a CRM system that brings revenue to you rather than you importing in what you're tracking and, and working with it. So that's what, we're, what we've been building. That's what we're, where we continue to build. Um, and that's getting back to your original question. It's that vision that gets people excited internally at Crunchbase. Where if you know if I was just like, hey, yeah, we're gonna build the biggest database of companies in the world, and it's this but bigger, you know, like it's it's just not <laughs> it's just not that exciting. But if you say, look, we're gonna do something that no one else can do because no one else has what we have, and we're gonna play that strength, build software that hopefully has a ton of value, and leverage this channel that we have of eighty now million people using Crunchbase to go and sell them this tool that should make their lives better and easier and make the world a better place. But um, that vision gets people fired up to work at Crunchbase. So then, okay, so then how did you, okay, so let's talk about the strategy used to actually build that model out. So day one, what? so you're like, okay, so we have access to all this data. Yeah, people yeah. want access to this data. We're gonna sell them a subscription to access this data. That makes sense. Um, you're building, are you building a marketplace or do you have so much data already that you actually don't have to worry about the the data side of it you have to get because i know there's a whole bunch of components right like you yeah. as a user looking for data i subscribe there's a monthly recurring but also i'm assuming at the beginning you probably didn't have every company properly filling all the information about them so the data wasn't 100 percent complete and i know like now it's probably advanced there's probably some sort of black box machine learning ai algorithm <laughs> that figures yeah. it all out but that yeah. wasn't day one so how did you first start building it out yeah so it's, it's a great question so when we when we first spun out. Um, the data was not that great. It was almost entirely user-generated data, which now today it's less than 10%. So, so it was, we, we over time made a big shift, but we didn't have time to fix the data. We only had about a year of runway when we spun out. And, and so we had a year of runway to change our business model, change the team, um, go and build the software um, that, that I think people might buy, sell the software to show traction and raise a series B before we're out of money. So, so it was, it was a pretty stressful year that first year, as you might imagine. <laughs> um, and, and it was, it was hard because, it, you know, there was, there was only so much we could do with the skills that we had and the bandwidth that we had. So the first step was, um, let's build the thing that it, just to see if anyone who has had this free tool would be willing to pay money for something else. So we built essentially a prospecting search tool. It basically lets you do very complex advanced searches of, of the data, which didn't exist before. It was more of a lookup tool. I hear it before it was, I know a company, I'm going to look it up. Now it's, um, I, I, I have a certain type of company in mind, which companies match that description. And then if there's new companies that match that description, let me know. Like now there's monitoring. So it's, it's give me a news alert, give me a funding alert, give me a new addition, new company that didn't match this, this criteria before, let me know immediately. Um, and that's what we launched um, almost exactly a year um, after we spun out was Crunchbase Pro. Um, now we're, and then we're charging 49 bucks a month. Um, and it was like, okay, well, is this going to work? Because now we put it out there, again, announced it, TechCrunch Disrupt. And if no one bought it, we were out of business in like 
two months, <laughs> like like maximum. Um, so luckily, people did buy it, and we were able to raise a Series B from Mayfield uh, shortly after. And okay, so as your so, how did you get your first say fifty customers on that first hundred first hundred customers? It was just through like you leverage media, I'm assuming, because you had TechCrunch, you had TechCrunch disrupt. So obviously, you do have a little bit of reach there. But was there anything innovative, any marketing strategies, anything that you did that was a little bit different to actually acquire users? Well, this is this is the sort of secret strength of Crunchbase is we already had 20 million people coming to our website, right? So they are already coming. All we really have to do is market to the people that are already coming to site. Um, and this will always be our, our strength. Again, I mentioned earlier, 80 million people using Crunchbase. Can we go and sell them something? Uh, is, 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 so we don't have to, our marketing budget relative to other companies our size is quite small because we're just trying to leverage our strength, which is people coming to site. And now it's like, well, who are, who are the people we should sell to? Who shouldn't we sell to? Are we trying to sell them the big thing, the little thing, the medium sized thing, all that sort of funnel, um, while trying to impact the user experience as little as possible so that the people that are getting value for free continue to get value for free. We don't want them to go away. We just want to, with they are ready to evolve into a little bit further in their career or a little bit further in, in, in their prospecting, mm-hmm. uh, they pay us money. And then what? So, we, like what, so we, all we did was what, put up a, a, a toaster on our website saying, hey, check out Crunchbase Pro and here's a video showing you what it does. And I, again, with, by the time we, so we turned a backstage at TechCrunch Disrupt. I'm about to go on stage to announce this new product. We had already sold licenses, but in the time that we turned it on five minutes before I walk on stage, um, just because people were so eager to buy it from us. So it was, it was rewarding because when I went on stage, I was already jubilant because at least someone had bought it and it wasn't my mom, you know? No, that's amazing. And well, yeah. I mean, there's a lesson in that in and of itself. I mean, if you like every company, I believe should be a media company, like technically you leverage the 20 million people that were already coming to your site. You didn't have to you didn't have to find a new audience, a target or a new. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs, no more servers, no more updates, just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. 
We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards and it's the same old story, tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. You know, a new user base to target, which is very important. So, I mean, that's, that is a lesson for startups. Obviously, if yeah. they don't have 20 million people hitting their site every day, they've got to figure some way to monetize. But ultimately, if you become a media company, if you build masses, you can find a way to sell into that audience too, which is something that you, you, you did day one. But the other thing that you probably wanted to optimize is the data. So I'm curious, when you first launched that product, was the data valuable enough for people to pay mm. for? Did you find out which data people would actually fork up some cash for and, and what was not acceptable. Yeah, it was it was a, a, a scary learning for me because when it's a lookup tool, you look up a company, if you've heard of it, the data is probably pretty good because it's probably a pretty well-known company. But when you have a discovery tool and now people are prospecting for companies just based on a set of criteria, it shows all of the bad data. Um, so for instance, you could say, show me all the companies made before 1900. And it's like, okay. <laughs> and then you see like, we have companies from like negative 32 BC. It's like, what is that? I don't even know what a negative year is. Um, and obviously it's not right. So we had a huge <laughs> cleanup project where we like just had to do all of the stuff that we thought people might do to sort of figure out what data might be exposed as horrible. Um, and that, and for me, that flipped a switch on, we have to invest more on our data <laughs> once we get funding to go and change how we get data. So it can't be user generated because you get squirrely things from people doing weird stuff, um, like giving themselves a hundred billion dollar funding round. It's like, okay, we need to go and put some, some, some controls on this, um, which is now what we've done. So you asked a question earlier about marketplaces. Um, that was actually the next thing we did after pro, um, well, we, we replatformed the entire data set. And the, and the, or, sorry, the entire website, the entire application, because we had inherited this thing that was pretty terrible. So we had to rebuild the whole thing from scratch. Now that we had proven this prototype that worked and we were able to sell. The next thing we did after that then was Marketplace, which allows us to go and integrate all sorts of data sources into what Crunchbase is. Um, so and I can talk uh, uh, for hours about how we get our data and how data works. Um, but the, the net net is we expanded the data from not just user data, but we also formed thousands of partnerships to go and get data in from governments, accelerators, VCs, data providers, all that is flowing now into Crunchbase to, to make a unified profile. Well, okay. Yeah. I was going to say, sure. there's a couple of ways that we could take this because I wanted to yeah, sure. have some great startup lessons, but then I'm trying to like bridge startup lessons plus the conversation about data because I saw one of <laughs> sure. your previous, so <laughs> I mean, like it all sort of yeah. combines. I mean, You've built this incredible platform. We're talking about data. I'm curious about, and maybe I'll just let you speak about all these different topics. So like data security, um, what people feel comfortable aggregating, especially if they're not, if it's not user generated, 
um, yep. GDPR, uh, Castle, all the different data compliance items that you have to be careful of and cognizant of. Um, what else? Also the fact that you use all these different partners. So I would say let's talk about all the different data things yep. that I'm sure you've dealt with. And then also all the different strategies you use to not just collect data, but you, I know you also use partners to build out the organization. Because mm. you've used all these different, all these different, you have like, I don't even know if this is the case still, but at one point you didn't have your own QA team. You had a partner right. for QA. So not only do you have all these partners for data collection, you like, you, you built a business with partners so that you, you don't have to deal with a lot of those internal costs. It's another interesting strategy. But first yep. let's talk about data, then we can go into like sort of business growth strategy. So talk yeah. to you about data, all, yeah, all, sounds, all things data. <laughs> sounds good. So let's, let's start with just how we get data. Um, so today we still have a great million user plus community of people who just put in data into Crunchbase. Why? Because they want to be well represented on our platform. If your company is wrong on Crunchbase, investors are going to miss you. They're not going to pay attention to you. Job seekers are going to think that you're dead in the water or you're not growing or not as big as they thought you'd be. All those things require you to update your Crunchbase profile because our brand matters in the ecosystem. Um, just like you keep your LinkedIn profile up to date. It doesn't matter which other profiles are out there about you. LinkedIn you keep up to date because that's the one that matters for you as a person. Crunchbase is the, the parallel for a company profile. So that's one aspect. Then we've got, as I mentioned, about 4,000 partnerships with governments, accelerators, VCs all over the world who give us that data. Why? Because these companies, these governments, uh, these VCs want to be well represented on our platform again. They want to look like tech hubs. They want to be look, look like they matter, that, that they matter and that are active. So they give us data directly. Um, we have um, about 60 data providers that go and stream data into Crunchbase. Um, that's massive amounts of data. Like you think about like G2 Crowd, like they've got all this data on products. Those are tied to companies. So we're able to go and absorb that into Crunchbase. So you have sort of this one-stop shop that has all these different data um, facets coming together. And there's no way we as a company could go and get like as our core competency to go and like f generate all that data. There's entire companies that do that. Let's just absorb that data into Crunchbase. And they're again willing to do it for us because of our brand and they want to be well represented. Some some of our partners you've never even heard of. Like a lot of people haven't heard of Bombora. They give us intent data. That data come, flows into Crunchbase so you can merge it with uh, other data sets. Um, so that is a, a, another aspect of, of what we are. So no one in the world has ever combined all these data sets into one unified profile before. Um, and now you're able to do prospecting against all these different flavors of data all at the same time and that's very very powerful so that's three the fourth way is uh, our machine learning our, our AI systems um, so that is a combination of crawling legal sources of data for us to go and get data from um, but but and that and that's a sort of table stakes but some of the secret sauce is we also generate a lot of our own data based on what we see from all these other data sets um, so and even from our own usage right so if everyone's flowing to a company profile page to go and check it out that's probably an important page right now for whatever reason um, that helps drive our trend scores and our growth scores and our um, sort of recommendation engines all these things are looking at which which data has impacted funding rounds are there more news stories are there people tweeting about this company a lot right now all those things drive into does this company matter or not um, and that helps 
figure out which companies we should prioritize. So that's the fourth way. And then the fifth way is we have a team of about 20-ish people um, who work for Crunchbase, and they manage a team of about 250 people overseas that go and do manual cleanup of data. Um, th those automation, the AI systems flag things that I can't figure out. Is this, is this uh, spam? Is this bad? Is this good? It kicks it over to the humans to go and add a human brain on top of it to go and, 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 and clarify. So you know, we spend like $20 million a year just making the data as good as it can possibly be and, of course, expand it. Um, all of that is a combination of those five things. And what's beautiful about that is no competitor out there can do what we do. Um, like I, I don't care who it is. There's no one who has all five of those things um, and can get themselves to a place where they can compete. Um, a lot of people are like, oh, I'll just crawl and I'll beat Crunchbase. Yeah, good luck. You're, there's just, there's Actually, just no I way wanna, you can do so it. So I, I asked like a, I did a horrible thing. I asked like a, a compounded question. So there was like 10 other things that I asked, but I don't yeah. want to let you go on because I actually want to just pause you here and just yeah, double sure. down on one thing you mentioned. Um, and then we can keep going. So the one thing that I realized is that you became, you became, you've mentioned this a few times, the source that people want to represent themselves on. Yeah. Now right. that's, that's incredible because if you even look at what you said, you, you, you get data from G2 and I don't know all the different sources you get data from, yeah. but G2 could even be considered a competitor, but hmm. technically not because they're feeding data into you. So how in the world did you become the person that everybody wants to be represented on? Because that, that is magic. However you manage to do that, <laughs> that's incredible, yeah. that market position that you're in. And I, and I think it really comes down to, uh, like G2, it's definitely a partner, not a competitor in our minds, as, as an example. You're going to go I know. there. You know what I mean, though? Because like they, yeah, they also totally. represent companies, right? Totally, but you would never go to G two to like figure out if they've got funding, you know, like or True, or yeah. if or if they what their website traffic is. Like you never you would never think to go there. You say, oh well, I'll go to a similar web or uh, an yeah, Alexa yeah. for website traffic data. But no one had combined it all together into one place, um, and that was based on our roots. That was very easy for us to do because when our the use case for at the very beginning of Crunchbase was what the hell does this company do? I have no idea. I'm going to go look it up at Crunchbase. I, I, I'm going on a date with someone. They work at fiddlesticks.com. Like, what the hell is fiddlesticks.com to do? You Google it, and Crunchbase comes up. And then you go and look at it. That base level, that what I like to call the master record of a company, was already what Crunchbase was. We didn't have all the companies, but for the companies that we did have, we were the master record of companies. And then with that framing, then we can go and take all these different facets of data like G2 products and plug it in. And G2 gets excited because we, we're going to give, we give it brand recognition as G2's data. Here it is. Click here if you want more data from G2 Crowd. So they see us as a lead source. Mm -hmm. Happy to do that because they're providing value to us. No, I love that. Um, but you didn't answer my question. How did you become, I guess because it was a master of, like you, you were the master of record. And, and I guess my point is I won't name competitors, but how, how yeah. come you were able to assume that position? versus yep. all the other competitors that are out there. And I don't even know who you actually consider a competitor, and I don't know who you partner with, so I don't want to miss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't want to no, misspeak. You're, you're good. Uh, yeah, you're good. Uh, it's the, the few things. One is we've been around for a really long time. So our SEO and backlinks and all the stuff you look for, for that drives how people do a Google search and you show up as the first thing, ours are off off the map. Like every competitor, no one has like the 52 million backlinks we have to Crunchbase. You know, and that's just from being around for a long time and being that master source of data where it's a standard way of talking about companies. Like here's, here's the link if you want to go figure it out. That, all those backlinks drove a lot of our SEO strength and that took 
you know, 14 years to go and do. That's fair. Um, yeah. And that's hard for any competitor to even come close on. Um, you know, and, and, and the big ones, you know, again, I, I, I'm, I'm probably less afraid to talk about competitors, you know, like a Zoom info. Like, let's talk. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. So I was thinking about the shortest day of the year earlier. While technically we have the same amount of time as every other day, the lack of daylight makes it feel so much shorter, which is kind of the same feeling as working with disconnected tools. Our workday is the same length as always, but before we know it, we spent three hours manually fixing something that is quote unquote automated. Thankfully, HubSpot's all-in-one connected CRM platform serves as a single source of truth for managing customer relationships across marketing, sales, service, and operations, meaning all of your team's data is truly connected. With multiple hubs, over a thousand integrations, and an easy-to-use interface, HubSpot helps you spend less time managing your software and more time connecting with your customers. Plus, with a quick and easy onboarding process, your teams can get started quicker than even the shortest day of the year. Learn how HubSpot can help your business grow better at HubSpot.com. That's, the, that's the first one I thought of. Yeah. Yeah. Like how can natural. They connect? Yeah. That's natural. Um, who the sh who gives a shit what Zoom Info has on my company? In fact, I want them to have the data wrong in Zoom Info so that no one finds me. You know, I want them to have the wrong data, and I don't even know how I could update the data if I did care enough to update the data in Zoom Info. Mm -hmm. It's a very closed system, um, and that means that the data is not very good. Um, I, I love going and, and it's one of my favorite things to do is go and show people the Zoom Info and like go and let's look up a company together and let's look, look at the data and the reason it's off is because they can't they don't have those five things they don't have the partnerships they yeah. don't have the, the 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 users updating the data um all those things lead to shitty data ultimately and, 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 and doesn't matter how good your tool is your data is is your 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 crown jewels and, and and okay so that's a great point it's almost like because you've opened it up to the users that's one i mean you do have the five pieces but opening up to the users and having that user input and almost it's not it's not a social community, but it's 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 like pressing up against like a social environment for B2B and company data, right? Like That's people right. are representing themselves in a way that I'm updating myself. I want to put stuff out into the world. I want to show up in a certain light on Crunchbase. So it, it is a little bit of a social community, not to the same extent, but yeah. you are including the user as part of that experience. It's a two, it's a two side marketplace, right? We've got entrepreneurs and investors trying to find each other. We've got prospects and salespeople. We've got BD people in partnership, like pending yeah. partnerships. Um, all those, like all those people are coming to Crunchbase to find one another. Um, and we have ideas even how to streamline that and help people connect further. So so you're right that there's an opportunity there to go even deeper. Um, and just no one no one does that on any other platform, and that's secret sauce. That's why LinkedIn won, right? That's why LinkedIn yeah. won around resumes. Uh, we see an opportunity for over us Indeed, over ZipRecruiter, right. over everything else. Yeah. Right. Um, and then that, uh, the other piece that I was curious about, just because you deal with it at scale, is the headaches with all the, the data compliance. So yeah. what does that mean for you as an organization? How do you make sure that you stay protected against all the, all the stuff that could hurt you, the GDPR, yeah. all that stuff? This is, it's a great question. And I think, and I'm a big advocate of privacy and I, and I think privacy laws are gonna get much tougher in the future, not, not, not this isn't the, the end. Um, and that's a good thing for us because we're company first. So what Crunchbase is all about is company information. Like that's our primary record. Um, yes, we do have contact information. Yes, there are individuals data in there, but for us that's secondary data. Whereas when you look at our competitors, it's often 
the, the contact data is their first record. Like that's the most important record for them is do I have the person and their contact information? Um, so in my perfect scenario, I want privacy law to make it so that no company can ever trade in contact information because it will shut down every competitor that we have. And what will be left is only company information. Which companies are the ones I should prospect into? That's not protected and it will never be protected by privacy law um, because it's not a person. So, so that means that's our strength. We are an account-based first, account-based selling, account-based prospecting platform um, that as a, as a bonus happens to have some contact information as well for you. Um, and I think that's a huge differential for us. So, and it protects us from GDPR, it protects us from all these other places. Um, we of course comply with all these privacy laws. Um, and I even like talk to the people that work, like write GDPR at, and give them advice on getting, how to get it even more restrictive. Cause I, I think it's only in our all best interest to, to shut that shit down. Um, so that people yeah. stop trading in with, with our private data. Um, but yeah, I've got a whole team thinking about it and we, and we, and you know, the law is constantly changing. It's hard as a startup to keep up with that stuff, honestly. Um, and, and, and we're pretty well resourced, but, uh, it's, it's, it's a dynamic field that will only get more strict. So when you're building a product, be sure that you're thinking well in advance of not just what the law is today, but just don't get flat footed because I, again, I think all these contact providers are dead. Like they just don't know yet. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you because when you, when, you, when, when you look up information on that platform and you even run campaigns against, you run campaigns with any of the data, I mean, I don't feel like, especially in Canada, I'm Canadian. So, I mean, mm -hmm. Castle, like there's, there's no way that any of that complies with Castle. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you, you, you do your best job to, to make sure that there's unsubscribe. And the U.S. is actually fairly forgiving for cold outreach. But in... You know, in Europe and Canada, it's it's virtually impossible. And they have a lot of Canadian contacts. They have a lot of European contacts. They have a lot yep. of Californian con contacts. So you wonder, right, how it's going to evolve exactly. in the future if your entire business model is based off that. But anyway, that's not your problem. So that's <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it could be. It's but it is stuff that I that that we need to make that as easy as possible for people to remove themselves from from the platform if they don't yeah. want to be a part of it. Um, but obviously, privacy is number one. Security is number two on, on these two pieces um, because it's so important to our business. Um, I want to talk about some of the, the startup lessons. So uh, I just alluded to this, but how you how you partnered out a lot of your startup. So with yeah. a lot of your startup, a lot of crunch bases <laughs> growth and whatnot. I'm, I'm speaking to you like a founder. I mean, you're, you're, you've been there since day one, but yeah. um, but you get it. So. You've partnered out a lot of the pieces. Why did you choose to partner out? So if we go through the life cycle of Crunchbase, um, sure. you you proved out a business model. You proved out some product market fit. You found your customers. You raised your Series B. Um, sure. Why did you choose to build a business model around partnerships? And, and talk to us about uh, what you partnered out and what you kept in-house. Yeah, I mean, I it's... One of these things where I think a lot of people do that already, but but if they're not, they should. Um, you know, we, when we spun out and we only had twenty people, um, what I didn't want those people doing is building things that were that were off the shelf solutions for. I wanted them to focus on the things that were completely differentiated for us. If you think, think about, it, we were running a website that had twenty million people coming to Crunchbase. That alone takes about twenty people. Like like how how do you go and build more on top of that? Um, so what I, as an example, like I wouldn't want people to go and build onboarding software, right? There's a, there was a debate at the beginning is do we, what do we do about that? Do we go in and, and buy something or do we build the little toaster? Like here, click here to begin. 
Pendo didn't exist back then. Um, that's what we use today. We st so that's still a thing that we have outsourced essentially to um, Pendo. Before that, it was a company called WalkMe. Um, so these, these companies were, that helped us, right? Like that saved weeks, if not months of development time. So we didn't have to build the onboarding experience. We could just have a product manager build it from, from scratch um, or, or, or using their templates. Um, other tools, like obviously an analytics, you know, like you're, you don't want to have to have people going and building that stuff. You use analytics tools and we use something called um, Grow, which I, they may have gotten acquired, but it was a, a tool called Grow that, that helped us do analytics. So I didn't have, like I was doing the analytics. <laughs> I was going and hooking up the systems and just trying to figure out how is the, how are we doing even as a company. Um, there's, there, we did, you mentioned QA, there was a company called Rainforest that did like QA for us. So all those things were not core competencies. I didn't want to hire anyone for it. It was just, I wanted to hire just the people that could build the stuff that we needed. Um, and so it was just every time we, we, we built, were building a component, it was, can we do that um, without building it? You know, is there anyone who does it? Um, and you'll find, especially today, like it was a little bit different than back, back then, but today, almost every component of your application, you can find someone who's already built a version of it somehow. Um, that's not that bad. Um, and, if you, and if you find a component that someone hasn't done that yet, pivot your company and go and build that instead because that's probably a good idea. <laughs> uh, no, that's fair. And then when you think about the, what you wanted to focus your team on, how did you, so you said if it already exists, get someone else to do it, but for what people should actually focus on because then I saw another piece you did about, you know, basically pressure testing your new products and your new widgets and your new and the new things you try and build out and you mentioned something in one of these past interviews it was like don't go to your peers don't go to don't go to you know your closest your closest group of friends and see if this is a good idea you right. have to go to the people the true stakeholders the true customers are going to use it and validate whether or not that piece of your company or that new product is going to be useful but how do you choose what to focus on how do you choose what the next project is so that you can hyper focus on the core competencies or maybe it's pillars that you have in Crunchbase that you always want to focus on. What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, this is this is where you've as a founder or as, a, as an early CEO, you need to trust your instincts a little bit like this. And this is maybe not aligned with what other people will tell you in, in like the lean startup universe. Um, no, I don't think any customer, any prospect, any user um, will especially in enterprise software, will necessarily go and say to you, this is what you should go and build. Thanks for talking to me. I've got these ideas. I'm going to tell you what they are. Um, they're, they're always going to react to what you have, and they're going to push you down the wrong road if you go and, and, and you go a little too open-ended. So, um, yeah, don't talk to your friends. Don't talk to your family. They're just going to tell you, yeah, you're doing a great job. Like, no one wants to tell you the bad news. Even customers or prospects, they want you to be successful. So they'll always say, yeah, I love this idea. Um, so at the end of the day, you have to really know your space well. You have to really know your, and, and like have a, a vision that you fundamentally believe in and have, you've been intellectually honest with yourself that there's a real market there that you know how you're going to go and approach it. You've thought way deep in the future. Like I've thought like way deep in the future to sort of figure out what problems will we have and then what's my solution and do I believe that solution? And if there's areas where you don't know the answer, like you've really tried hard and you can't solve a single one of these problems, then talk to users and maybe they'll, they'll give you an insight into getting to the answer. They're not going to say this is the answer, but you could try a couple of things that you think might work and see which one might work better than the other. 
Um, but I have this challenge all day. With, with Crunchbase, there's so many things for us to focus on. If I talk to 100 users, they're going to tell me 100 things wrong with Crunchbase. Um, and we're not doing any of them. <laughs> you know, we're, we're going to go after this other thing because it, none of the, no one's going to say, you know what, Jagger, I really would love a prospecting CRM that gets me revenue. Like, no one's going to ever say that to me. Um, and that's why, like, you need to swing for the fences if you want to build a big company. And that's so that is you use your intuition, you use your understanding yeah. of what's broken in the in the industry and your intuition to decide like what to focus on next. And and, yeah. and what's your feedback loop for whether or not that initiative is successful? Yeah, it, it, this is, again, very controversial, um, but it, it for me, it's it's it's, you know, build the prototypes, build it pretty far out, find your prospects and ask them if they'll buy it, you know, and, and that's um, it's. You know, this. I love showing pictures to people. I love people reacting to that. They're not going to react to slides, and you don't want to wait till you've built the product, obviously. So just show them the thing, and not asking anything other than, "Will you buy it?" Um, mm -hmm. Like if this was real right now. Um, every, all the other feedback, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. Um, and if they say no, ask why. Um, I was going to say no. I just think that you uncovered something that. I think a lot of other founders dance around and why the answer to that question is so uncomfortable is because it requires you to be obsessed with what you're building right. to actually have the intuition. The intuition is not luck. Intuition is diving so deep into an industry or a category that the next possible step becomes natural, which is why the most successful entrepreneurs are the entrepreneurs that have been living in an industry for the past 20 years. They find a problem, they try and solve it, right? It's not the Stanford grad that is the highest rate of success right. for an entrepreneur. So I think that you actually uncovered something. It's that Potentially, there's a lot of tricks and maybe people try and gimmick and, and sort of game the, the product creation or the ideation process or something new. But ultimately, like what it comes down to is just living and breathing what you're building every single day. And that's where you get the best ideas. And that's where you know things that maybe even your customers don't know, your company doesn't know. That's where you have to trust that you are the expert. But you have that's to right. be that expert. And, and that's great advice. It, it, it's good advice. It may be unrealistic for a lot of people because because I can imagine a founder who's like just out of college, like, well, uh, okay, cool, thanks, Jagger. You're saying go go into the industry for 20 years and then and then launch your idea, like like fuck off. Um, so so I so I get that. Um, but I guess I'm talking to the person who's been at that company, stuck in that industry, dreaming of something better and bigger, and they have an idea. I would say your that advantage that you have of being in the industry leverage it, trust yourself, go after it. Um, you don't have to go through the same um, risky game of launching something where you don't really know the industry. Like I mentor a lot of companies and, and, and they, these folks will say like, hey, I've got a new like snack company and I'm, I, I'm, I've never done food or snacks or anything before. They're, the odds of failure are, are skyrocketing um, compared to someone who's coming from that industry. Uh, so so it's, 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 a, it's an unfair advantage that I have. Um, one thing that I think is admirable about how you structured your company may have come from your PTSD of being through a company that went through seven rounds of layoffs, <laughs> but um, the fact that you don't believe in growth at all costs. That's so right. speak to me about what that is. Uh, is it still prevalent in the industry or is that not really something that people believe in anymore? Speak to me about how you build Crunchbase without that mindset in terms of your your business, who you hire, your profitability, your your investors you bring on, the expectations you set with them. Yeah, I think there, I think there's two types of CEOs, and there's the one that loves that, that, and you'll see here investors tell you this. 
CEOs are always fundraising. Like you should be fundraising all the time. And there's a certain CEO type that loves to do that. And, that, and they agree with that, that mentality. I think that worked for the last, you know, half dozen years, whatever it was. Um, that doesn't work anymore. Um, and so the, the CEOs that are their type, which is like, did it me, ever work? Did it ever uh, work though? Well, I mean, it's certainly you could raise money for without even trying for the last five, six years. Yeah. Um, but but was your business really being built the right way? That's a that's a whole another set of questions. Um, but for me, it's um, I've always liked building efficient businesses, and 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 uh, we have also operated the assumption that we would get funding in two to three years, and that's what we've followed. But now with how the market has changed, even I've gone even more pr- pragmatic. And just said, look, that was our last funding round. Like, great, you, we raised money. We are never raising money again. Um, and how do we run the business now? And I think everyone, even at the seed level, of like, hey, I just raised a friends and family or a seed round or a series A, all everyone should be saying, how long can we make this last? And if you um, can make it last forever, obviously that's a, that's the winning move. Um, if it's years and years and years, awesome. If it's like 18 months, I would really take a careful look right now at what you're, what you're investing in. Are you doing ad spend so you can show growth to the next investor so that you can go and raise that round because someone's telling you you need to be growing at 50% or more every, um, every year? No, you don't. Slow down because you're, you, that, in 18 months, none of us know what funding is going to look like. Right. Funding is I mean, we track funding, so we have a lot of visibility in this. It's cratered um, this quarter compared to a year ago. Um, and, and if it keeps continuing, it's just it's you don't want to depend on the market getting better, which means the dollars in your bank account need to last as long as they possibly can. Um, and I think every CEO is trying to deal with that. The problem is that these fast growing, the other CEO that, that, that raises and they, they are at 10 million in, in revenue, they raise at a billion dollar valuation and they have 500 employees um, because they thought they could just get ra- raised in a round in six months. They're fucked. Um, yeah. So now like, what, you don't know what to do. So you have to lay off. It's ugly. Morale goes down. Your culture crashes and you might not survive. Um, and that's who the hell wants to do that? Yeah, I mean, no, you're, you're, uh, yeah, of course. Um, and you're you're profitable, obviously. Like you, we're not. No, we're not. Oh, you're not. Um, nope, we're not. So, so in the first half of the year, we burned about two million dollars, okay. um, but we added nine million dollars in recurring revenue. So that's a good burn rate, like the, the burn ratio to the to the to the net new ARR. Um, but no, we're not, we're still burning, but that's why I raise money, right? Like you don't raise if you, I was going to ask was, like, when, when is it right for you? So then as a CEO, your goal, yeah. when you, when you do, and actually I, I have a question for you, how yeah. do you manage invest investor expectations? Because if you want to build a profitable cash flowing company and you say, we don't want to raise if we don't have to, yeah. how do you find the investors that are okay with that? Because investors, do they not want an exit opportunity? Well, I think right now every investor is okay <laughs> with that. What they really want is they don't want your business to go or you, you, go, you go out of business. <laughs> um, so I think I've certainly seen a, a shift in, in investor dynamics. Um, I've got a board meeting next week. We're obviously going to be talking about what's happening in the market. And what I've seen so far is they say, look, batten down the hatches. I would protect the investment, right? Um, get as much growth as you can without overspending. And that's been our mantra for a long, long time. But I think every, every company is thinking the same way. Just survive um, and don't count on funding. Um, and then one other thing that I thought was interesting, um, when, 
when you when you well actually i know that part of what you had documented from crunchbase is that 1.2 percent of all of all funding goes to black founders and and when i was speaking to uh individual on your team and we're prepping for this podcast um that's just disgusting and kind of horrifying um so what are what are you doing uh with crunchbase to use your platform for good for yeah. helping diverse founders what are trends that you're seeing how can we like one per, like 1.2 percent is like it almost doesn't it doesn't make sense it doesn't compute it it's oh, yeah. not real how little funding is going to to minority bipoc founders so how do you how do you fix that i mean it's not something that you can fix alone but what do you think yeah. the industry should try and do yeah, I mean, there's there's a few reactions to, to what you're talking about here. So one is use your company to do good in the world in any way that you can. So we have this amazing channel. Let's go and do that. I recommend every company think about how they can do that. In our case, we have this channel. That channel lets us go and um, take the data that we have and express out these sorts of issues. So the reason people talk about that in like women founders, uh, it's also incredibly low. It's, 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 it's in the single digits of uh, women who are getting funded. It's just totally fucked up in our industry. Um, the only reason we know that is because of the data and the only people that are tracking that is us. So that lets us go and push that out to the world to let people make, know that change. As far as what we can do about it, um, we meaning the industry, not crunch base. Um, I personally think that the, the there's a, we need to change how investors the, the investors are 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 hiring. Um, when you have diverse investment committees in these VC firms that make the investments, they make diverse investments. Insane. Um, when it's all, a bunch of white guys sitting around the, the table, they make investments in people that look like them, and that's part of the problem. Um, I've seen pushes of like, well, let's go and push for diversity in board boards of startups and stuff. And I think that's a little less realistic um, because that requires me as the founder to go and find diverse investors when there are very few of them. Um, and that just doesn't work very well. Um, and also when I'm raising, I might only have one term sheet on the table. I'm taking that one. I'm not, not yeah. taking it because it's not a diverse investor. Um, so you need to change the investor makeup um, at these firms, which, and, and so in a, in a maybe overly restrictive, but maybe a perfect world, um, the investor firms would be held to a standard where they have to publish their diversity um, scores um, and then even have expectations of changing them to, to match um, something that, that represents the world that we live in. Um, is this, is this a 1.2% like post, post, you know, George Floyd, Oh, yeah. BLM. This is in 2022. Oh, yeah. This is still 1.2%. So has yeah, the needle it, not it, moved at all? Oh, it, it sure has moved in the wrong direction. It's gone down. So, so in 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 a so post George Floyd, for a moment, for just a moment, it went up a little bit, and and everyone was optimistic that maybe we, we were on the right trend. But as soon as the market turned and went down, so did the investment dollars into um, these underrepresented classes, both both gender and race, um, and that's fucked up. Um, it really is. And and the reason, unfortunately, is that the white males who are making the investment decisions tend to think it's a less risky proposition to invest in someone that looks like them. Um, and, and it's, my, sudden, it's my hypothesis. And then that all of a sudden, when there's no more, when it's not in the news cycles anymore and they don't feel right. pressure and people aren't blowing them up on Twitter, then all of a sudden they 
all, they, they don't put the emphasis, they don't put the focus on it anymore. That's it's right. just, it's not top of mind. That's unfortunate. That's, that's really right. actually, that's really surprising. And that's why it, I, I think it has to happen at the, uh, it, it, there has to be a policy. There has to be something that's instituted because I don't think it's going to happen naturally. Like this is some deep Well, that, if you look at this, it's showing that it's not happening naturally. Correct. That's right. If, if people felt pressure and, and like they were, everybody was given as much opportunity as it could ever be afforded to be able to do this properly and be better, right? Everybody was given that opportunity. Like even, even if you, even if you felt uncomfortable, like the whole world was helping you be supportive, underrepresented founders and underrepresented business owners. So now That's you right. take that and you can run with it and you, and now you know what to do. Now you know how to maybe uh, find other types of founders that you never invested in before. Maybe you know how to um, allocate a certain percentage of your dollars because you've already done it and, and you feel comfortable with that and you've put that into your investment thesis to, you know, so now, now, you're, now you're all set up. But then right. obviously you just revert to exactly the way you were before. That's no good. So exactly right. And, and, and so as a startup founder, if you're an entrepreneur listening to this, um, like what you can do is mentor. Um, it's free to do. You know, and you can go and help out underrepresented classes and, and, and help them with their startup idea. Um, so I try to do that. Um, I've got a number of different area, avenues and lead sources for me to go and help folks. I'm helping you know, half dozen right now um, help their startup, help make connections for them, help them know who they should talk to, give them feedback on their pitch deck, give them ideas on how, how they could scale. All that stuff is stuff that anyone can do if you've got a skill set that, that's applicable. And that actually can go and increase the likelihood of success for, for, for these underrepresented classes. Um, and anyone um, can. No, amazing. Okay. Um, I, want to, I want to just uh, pick your brain about the, the future of Crunchbase. Obviously, yeah. you have a, a million ideas coming in every single, every single day about where you should take it. Um, where do you want to take it? What do you What do you think is in store? I'm sure you have, like you mentioned, you look uh, ten years into the future when you're working on a company. So, what's next? I mean, you have you have this incredible product. You are the de facto, like you mentioned before. Um, yeah. Where do you take this next? And, so, I, and I want to I want to bring out a lesson for somebody else that builds a marketplace in another category or another industry, and they look at the evolution of that marketplace and how to monetize and how to grow it, and then ideas for where you can take it. Yeah, I, I mean, again, the big thing that we're that we will be working on for the next many years is true CRM. Like, no one thinks of Crunchbase as a CRM system. Like, it's just a, that is disconnected from reality. We don't have half the things you need for a CRM system. So, those are the things that we're going to build, and those are the things that are going to come out. That is the future from a product standpoint of what we're doing. Uh, taking one step back, um, something I really think we are able to do is prove to the world that you cannot build enterprise software without data. You can, the, the days of building pr productivity stuff on top of an empty database just doesn't work anymore. Um, and that future of like what AI and what machine learning is going to be helping do, all, all of that needs is data. Um, you know? And so can, um, can an expense reporting tool go and do um, like, like things automatically based on data that it knows about what's happening in the market. Like for instance, like, hey, I'm paying a certain amount for a vendor software. What if your software comes back and says, hey, you know what, you're actually paying, you're in the top 10% quartile of what people pay for that particular piece of software. You're getting screwed. Maybe go back to the vendor and save yourself some money. Like 
how could it do that? Well, it has all this data, right? And that's and that would be the best expense reporting tool there is. You could do that with any single ex enterprise software out there. If you add a layer of data, it becomes infinitely more powerful than the empty database that you get when you get most expense reporting tools or whatever happen, happens to or, be. Or CRMs or anything, really. I mean... Everything. Uh, I, Every so I, I would even ask... Um, and you don't want to, again, you don't want to set your competition up to succeed, but I would ask <laughs> like right. outside of, outside of spending 14 years plus aggregating data, is there a way for another company that was, uh, a, a, a front end system first with no data in the back end? Is there a way for a company to do that? Yeah, of course. I, I, if I let's say I, let's say I had an expense reporting company, I'm like, thanks, Jagger. I wish I knew that when I started. Um, yeah. Like, what do I what do I do? Um, the the great thing about the world today is that there are many 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 data companies that aren't software companies. Very few have figured out that they should be a software company, and may, and, and there's very few software companies that realize they should be a data company. So that data is out there. So someone out there is tracking how much people spend on software or, or on, on, on vendors as in this example, go find them. They're desperate for dollars. Like data companies are hard to make money on. So go talk to them, form a partnership, do a little bit of a rev share with them or something, just get started. Um, and now you're importing that data in and now you can build that great software. You didn't have to reinvent the wheel of where to get that data from or how to, how to source it. You just found that one partner that has it you can validate the idea and then you can go from there. I would just, if you're building software on an empty database, what data would make, would make your software a hundred times better? Go find it. Cause it, I, I can't think of a single example of that of where it doesn't already exist. I love that. Okay. Um, uh, last, last, I'll, we have one more question I always ask, but before we pivot, um, what would be one piece of advice that you'd leave a, an entrepreneur with a, a founder? If the most important thing that you've learned over your career, what would be one thing that you just want to impart on them? So many things come to mind. Um, the, the, the biggest and most applicable now is, is um, don't raise. And I'm not saying it, don't raise because it's hard. It's, it's just, it isn't worth it. Um, the, and, and, and you'll build a better business if you stay scrappy longer. There's exceptions to this rule. If like there's real competition that's going to kick your ass if you don't go fast enough, okay. But most of the time, that's not the case. So take your time, preserve your ownership, keep keep your vision pure, and go after it. You're, you did it for a reason, you know, and 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 make it happen. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. 
There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. 
This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 